writer here is going to answer this, the question, what is the bond that Jesus has with His people? What is He accomplished? And what is the bond He has with His people? And He's going to answer that with an invitation to come and see what God has done for us as Emmanuel, God with us. And He's going to give the answer in verse 10. Uh, but before, I want to review a little bit of verses 5-9 through nine that we looked at last week. Um, Writer of Hebrews in verses 5 through 9 quotes from Psalm 8 and reminds us of the commentary that the psalmist gives uh, of, of Genesis 1 26 through 28, where God created man in his image and gave him dominion. And as he quotes that in Hebrews chapter 2 and quotes Psalm 8, uh, he reminds us that it is, we don't see that today. Man has fallen, the image of God is distorted, the dominion certainly is is lost. But Jesus, in verse 9, we see Jesus who uh, became true man and through the, the path of death restored the glory of honor. He, verse 9 says, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That word taste there is a word uh, that has more to do with, with, with tasting different flavors of cheeses or, uh, or, or trying something new. It's the idea, and it's translated in Acts chapter 10 as the word eat. And it's the idea of, 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 uh, of finishing something, gorging. And Jesus ate death. He's the death eater. And God raised him from the dead, victorious for over death. And so, when we get to verse 10, it's going to say, For it became him, or it's fitting here, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the idea here is him, God the Father, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, Romans 11.36, God the Father, in order to bring many sons to glory, it was necessary, it was needful, that the Son of God be made perfect through sufferings. That the captain of their salvation, that word captain is a, is a word that... Um, has to do with one who is the first. has to do with leadership. It's kind of flexible in the Greek language. Uh, some translations have translated it as pioneer. And that is a, is a, is a good translation. Uh, captain is a good translation. It's the idea of a champion. It's the idea of the pathfinder. The pathfinder of salvation. And God made the captain of salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. Now, packed in that verse there is implied that the captain of salvation was able to suffer, and the captain of salvation must have become a man. God doesn't suffer in the sense that the fallen world suffers. In verse 11, he brings the, the humanity together with this captain of salvation. He says, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. There's a union there with God's people. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And he quotes from three Old Testament passages to show us why that is true. I want you to see this morning that in verse 10 and through the rest of the chapter, and we're going to, we're going to uh, uh, preach this passage again uh, next week and get through the, through the end of it. I'm not going to be able to finish it this morning, chapter 10 through 18. But I want you to see that there is a necessary state. There is a necessary state. 
In other words, Christ is glorious because He's truly man in every part. He's truly man in every part. That's repeated in this passage and other passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We see in verse 9, Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We see again in verse 10, and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The idea of Jesus' humanity. Verse 11, he that sanctifieth and they are sanctified are all of one. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Uh, verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Later on in verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, humanity, specifically through Abraham's line. And then in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Verse 18, For that he, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able also to succor or deliver them. That are tempted. It's what you see uh, later on in chapter 4, verse 15, uh, 15. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then in Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9, it really corresponds to Hebrews 2.10. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, though he was the son of God, deity, he, listen, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. That passage there probably raises some questions, and we're going to start to lay a foundation for understanding that in this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. So first of all, there is a necessary state. There is a necessary state of the Messiah. Christ is glorious because he is truly man in every part. But the question might arise in our minds, how did Christ became man? Well, he's born of a virgin, born of Mary. Yes, but how did he become a man? And there's no better passage to answer that this morning than Philippians chapter 2. And I'd like you to turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God... That idea of form of God means the form of God, being God, God's very nature, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, thought it was not something to be stolen, to be equal with God, because it was his rightful place, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. That idea, form of God, now form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That word, humbled himself, that idea there of Jesus emptied himself. Uh, Some have 
use that to say that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth in what's been called the kenosis theory. Um, and basically, I want you to understand that's not true. Jesus didn't give up his any attributes. If God gave up one single attribute, ceased to have one single attribute, he'd be, he would not be God anymore. Some have said, well, he gave up uh, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, all, his, his, his presence everywhere, his, his all-knowing state, his, his all-power. And he did this voluntarily so he could function as a man in order to fill, fulfill the work of redemption. But uh, it's not true. He didn't give up those things. There in Philippians 2, the writer Paul is saying that Christ being fully God possessing the very nature of God and being fully equal to God in every respect didn't insist on holding on to all the privileges of his deity. The benefits of his position as equal with God and refused to accept coming as a man. What's important to understand here is in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 6 where it says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It's the idea that he did not think that grasping equality with God was wrong because he was God. It was right. It was not blasphemous. And it's crucial to see that his not grasping equality with God does not mean that he gave up being God. Or became any, in any way less than fully God when he took on a fully human nature. No. Rather, he didn't grasp the rights and prerogatives that were rightly his as God. That his full equality with God the Father gave him in order to fulfill his calling to become fully a man who amazingly would be servant of all. In other words, what this means is Christ Jesus existing and remaining fully uh, who he is as God. He accepts a divine calling from God to come to earth and carry out the mission assigned to him by the Father. As the eternal Son of God, who is himself the form of God, the very nature of God, he must come in the very nature of a servant. So he must come fully as a man. And as a man, he must live his life and give his life as one of us. And in so doing, Christ pours himself out. He pours himself out. All of who he is is poured out and he takes on, in addition to his full divine nature, he takes on, in addition, a full human nature. It's crucial to see this emptying, the self-emptying of the eternal Son. Paul is, is not saying that he uh, 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 poured something out of himself. No, he poured himself into humanity. He poured himself out fully. He poured himself out by adding to himself the nature of a man. nature of a servant. To give his life in full obedience to fulfill the will of the Father. And that's hard to understand. Let me give you a couple of illustrations here. I mean, how could Christ empty himself and gain? Um, <clears throat> let's imagine that your wife gives you permission, men, to go to the new car dealership. Alright? And you are going to uh, test drive a brand new car. 
and you're looking around the showroom floor, and the salesman approaches you, and he tells you about the models, several models that are on display in the showroom, and your eyes land upon a particularly bright and shiny brand new car that is reflecting the sunlight that's streaming through those, uh, the windows in the showroom. And you ask if you can test drive this shiny car. The salesman agrees. And as you leave your test drive, as it's probably easy to do around here, you head out into the country in some of the dirt roads. And it happens that this area had received some rain recently, and so these dirt roads are muddy, there's mud puddles, and you're driving this shiny new car on these muddy dirt roads, back roads for several miles. You're you're spinning the tires, and uh, you're enjoying how the car handles itself on these slippery dirt roads. After a while, you return the car back to the dealership, and you pull in the lot and drive it back onto the showroom floor. And now it's caked all over with mud. And the salesman sees you, and he comes over the car and says, what, what do you do to my car? And there's no dents in it. There's no scratches. But you calmly reply, I haven't taken anything away from your car. I've only added to it. All right? And you're, you're exactly right. That point is correct. Underneath that mud, that beautiful shine of the car is still there. The luster is there. The beauty hasn't been removed. But what's happened is something else has been added to that car that prevents the qualities from being able to shine through. And the beauty of the car hasn't been destroyed or diminished. It's been covered over by the mud. I know all illustrations break down, but that's, that's one, you could even say this, that the glory of the car is every, but as, every bit as much present as it was previously, but this glory can't be seen because of the covering that's over it, the covering of mud. And so taking on the mud, that car uh, has had something that resulted in its appearing less, but in fact, it's added something to it. Now you say, what does it add? I mean, what value does mud add? Well, that's where illustration breaks down. Here. But I hope it helps see a little bit here how Christ could on the one hand retain full deity as God and beautiful glory and take on humanity. So limited. And it's full deity, fully possessed, but not fully expressed. Fully possessed, but not fully expressed. And the human nature... That God, the Lord Jesus Christ, chose was something that He chose forever. Do you understand that? He's still the God-man. When He went up to heaven, He didn't cease being a man, true man. He's still the God-man. He chose that. You see, apart from the incarnation, there's nothing to hide or conceal His full deity. He's shown in full brilliance. That's what Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4 through 4 is all about. But when he became also a man, he covered himself. He joined humanity with his deity, with a created, a limited and finite human nature. So Christ is fully God in the incarnation. But in his work and life and ministry in the Gospels, he doesn't express the full range of his divine qualities or attributes. In fact, he limits them. His deity is still present, it's still intact, but his manifestation of that glory is not allowed full expression. There are a couple times where it is peeled back a little bit to see. 
Maybe that illustration didn't help you. Here's another one. If you've read The Prince and the Pauper, you get a good illustration of this. Imagine a great and glorious kingdom that's ruled by a strong and a wealthy king who has everything at his disposal. I mean, he has every privilege one can imagine. He possesses the finest of anything that money can buy. He eats each day from the choicest cuisine. When he's ill, he has the finest doctors in his kingdom that, 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 that care for him. He wears the most elegant and exquisite of clothes. He is, uh, he is uh, protected by a, an impenetrable force of royal soldiers at his beck and bid. And one day, he takes a journey, a short journey to another portion of his kingdom, and he passes an area that he's really seldom seen. And before him on the streets, on the streets, he sees several beggars, and he can't get these poor men out of his mind. Now, this is an illustration. Don't pull this too hard, all right? And as he's returned to the palace, he thinks to himself, "I wonder what it's like to live life as a beggar." And so he can't get that question out of his mind. So he's determined to find out what life is like. In that state, and he decides to move out of the royal palace, all the privileges, all the best that his kingdom has offered him, onto some of the most impoverished streets in the city. He doesn't wear the fine clothing from his wardrobe. He puts on the tattered, smelly clothes of a beggar. And in every way he can, he acquires the day-to-day life and limitations that the life of a beggar is like. So now... Restricted by a beggarly life. When he's hungry, he can't call for the royal chefs to prepare him a choice meal. And in order to live life as a beggar, he instead learned what it was like to grow hungry or beg food and experience. When he grows ill from the disease surrounding him, he can't summon a highly trained, educated doctor, the best in the kingdom, to attend to him. No, he has to accept being sick with little, if any, help for his illnesses. When he's insulted and mistreated by mean-spirited passerbyers, he could have called for the royal guard to defend him and bring justice to bear against that cruelty. But in order to live life as a beggar, he chose no retaliation against the mistreatment and insults. And so while all the qualities of a king were retained fully by this king who became a beggar, the expression of those rights and privileges could not be made. He had chosen to live as a beggar. Or again, while he possessed all those qualities that are his as king, uh, he could not express those rights because it would cease. He would cease to be living as a beggar. The point is this. That king and that story, he couldn't live according to all the rights and privileges he knows as king and also live life genuinely and authentically as a beggar. Once he is chosen to take on the life of a beggar, a pauper, he must accept the restrictions or limitations of the expressions of those qualities and rights and prerogatives that he rightly deserved and owned as king. Although he is king, he continues to possess his right as king. But he's also a beggar, chosen to live as beggar. And he still accept and choose the fact that his rights and prerogatives can't be expressed. Life as a beggar requires those 
restrictions. And in a sense, that's how Christ, in a sense, on the one hand, retains full deity and humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant. Takes on humanity. And does not express his full deity. In fact, it's so obvious. It is so obvious to people living among Jesus that he is so human that they got to be convinced he's God. We come from this other side of it, understanding Jesus is God, and we've uh, fought many battles against the liberals explaining Jesus' deity, but we've missed the fact that he's... Man. And he went through what fellow men went through. The stomach bugs. The sufferings of life. The rejection. Relationships broken. The mockeries. He went through. Fully. And so back in our passage in in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So there was a necessary state that he would become a human. Second, there was a necessary suffering. And if Christ is glorious because he was truly man, he is glorious because as truly man, his suffering made him complete. You might say, how does suffering make Christ complete? In fact, the Bible talks about how we're complete in him. How can someone who is perfect be complete? Well, <clears throat> Philippians 2.8 tells us, What the son suffered, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the extent or to the point of even dying of death. Even death on the cross. So it's not uh, uh, the obedience per se that Paul's stressing. His obedience is, is central to the point. The stress is on the kind of obedience he rendered. The extent to which he was called to go in obeying his father. What kind of obedience? It's obedience to the point of death. Obedience that accepts suffering, rejection, ridicule, agony. Now listen, the Son in eternity past always obeyed His Father. He enjoyed perfect fellowship. He did the Father's bidding. He did the Father's will. But when He became a man, when He became a man, He never, before He never had to embrace that kind of obedience and suffering. He obeyed the Father previously. He carried out the Father's will. We think about how He was the agent of creation at the Father's will. When He came to earth in the flesh, never before has obedience been rendered in a context of rejection and suffering. Never before. The kind of obedience He now rendered was new. He humbled Himself to expect obedience of a kind He had not known previously. He suffered. He suffered. To the point of death, even death on a cross. All the way to death. All the way to a cross-inflicted death. That was the extent of the obedience the Father required His Son to embrace. And He did so. Fully knowing the cost. Fully knowing the cross-bearing. Fully knowing the cost to His own life and well-being. What a servant. What a servant. The eternal Son, God the Son, obeyed the Father. Fulfilled what the Father willed for the Son to do before the Incarnation, certainly. 
But it was only the God-man, the human Jesus, who obeyed in this way. To obey to the point of death required the ability to die, didn't it? The ability to die requires being mortal, human. Be placed on a cross required he be human. His obedience required that he be fully human. It's amazing obedience. It's great love. And folks, I think before we talk about what it means to live like Jesus, before we throw out words like, what would Jesus do? We need to ponder deeply what it meant for him to do what he did in coming to earth. What it meant for him to do to take on our human nature and suffer an agonizing death on the cross to pay for our sin. And that is what Charles Sheldon left out in his book, In His Steps. What would Jesus do? Charles Sheldon was a liberal who didn't believe Jesus was God. But we could uh, copy his life. And we could, uh, we could uh, be kinder people in our neighborhoods. But he missed the deep-rooted theology behind it. Jesus... God and the flesh. And folks, until we see the heights from which Jesus came and the depths to which He descended and coming as a suffering servant who bare our sin, we will belittle the magnitude of what Jesus has done if we fail to see the extent He was willing to go. The answer to this is to think deeply in the Scripture and Meditate on the magnitude of what Jesus did. And it's then that we can take up truly the banner of living like Jesus. Walking in His steps. Following His example. As the scriptures tell us. We understand what this life is about. So it was not only a necessary state, but there was a necessary suffering. But thirdly, there is a necessary salvation that results from this. A necessary salvation. You see, Christ is glorious because as true man, His sufferings are not just for an identification with us, but to bring us to the Father. His suffering brings us with Him to the Father. Look in Hebrews 10, two, excuse me, two, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. For both He that sanctifieth and those who are sanctified are all one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. From we know the scripture story, we were enemies, so something must have happened for him to be able to call a, 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 a human beings brethren. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church or the congregation will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the Father which God hath given me. There is a necessary salvation because Christ is glorious because He's a true man. And because He's a true man, His sufferings bring us with Him to the Father. Specifically, the suffering of the cross. The writer here quotes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And this is a, this is the second part of, the, of, of Psalm 22. The first part talks about the suffering of Christ on the cross. And his lament now changes in, in Psalm 22, verse 22 to 31. His lament changes to thanksgiving. 
He responds joyfully to the Lord's vindication, his exaltation after his suffering and affliction. And in Hebrews here, the writer quotes one specific verse. I will declare your name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation or the assembly or the church, I will sing your praises. You understand what that verse is saying? That Jesus here is in the presence of his father in the throne room of heaven. And all around him are people who have been redeemed. The congregation of the righteous. The very righteousness of God. People who have been saved. And Jesus declares glory to the Father along with these people. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praises unto thee. The crucified and exalted Christ is declaring God is your Father to these people around Him. And He's declaring to His Father, these are your people, my brothers. And He is, listen, He is leading them in singing praises to the Father. His voice is singing praises to His Father. And all around Him are the redeemed of the Lamb joining Him in song and praise. That's the miracle of Christmas. There's a couple connections here that the author is making here. Jesus promises to declare God's name to his brothers and sisters amongst them. To his father demonstrates his, his connection with him, doesn't he? Here he is with his people all around him. And he is leading them and singing praises to his father. Right with them. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation purchased by His blood brought into one family, His brothers. The next phrase, the next quote says in verse 13 or excuse me, verse verse 13 and again I will put my trust in Him. That's a quote probably from Isaiah 8, 17. And what it was, in Isaiah 8, the prophet Isaiah is giving oracles of salvation and judgment to God's people, telling them to return back to the Lord, worship of, of Yahweh. And the people are not listening. It's not re- his message isn't be re- being received by the king or his people. And so he seals up his messages, and he hands them over, Isaiah hands them over to his disciples for safekeeping in Isaiah 8.16, so that then when they are fulfilled, it would be clear that he had truly spoken the word of the Lord. And then in verse 17, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face in the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. In Isaiah 8. In other words, he's expressing his determination to wait for the Lord's word to be fulfilled in spite of the unbelief and rejection of the people he's supposed to be prophesying to. In darkness. And so it was with Christ. Isaiah's words here now applied to Christ by the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.13 show that in order to fulfill the will of his Father, to obey even to the point of death, he exercised faith. Faith. And if Jesus, the true man, exercised faith in God's word and his promises, the writer of Hebrews in the great overall context is telling us, hang on, hold fast. Jesus did this. He finished the course. 
He set the, the, the course before Him, and He did it by persevering faith in the promises of His Father. I will declare thy name and thy brother in the midst of the congregation where I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. Are you weak? Faith. They had to depend on God. His very words at the end of his life before he breathed his last were, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. There's another quote from Isaiah. It's the end of verse 13. He says, And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Here's a picture of Isaiah. And he's probably standing with one of his two sons on either side of him. Isaiah had two sons. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And he named two sons with significant names. In the Hebrew, one of, their son, one of the names means a remnant will return. The other name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And those are signs or symbols. And they were testimony to the Lord's ongoing presence and power. And Isaiah is obedient trust in the Lord. And he's standing there with his two sons and he says, Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. Referring to his own two physical sons. In other words, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. Me, Yahweh is salvation. These two sons, given prophetic names. Perhaps he has his hand on one and his hand on the other. And both hands on these prophetically named sons, he says, Here I am and the children God has given with me. We're signs, we're symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty that dwells in Mount Zion. In other words, the sons that God gave him are a confidence that the future promises of God to Israel will, be, will come to pass. The fact that Isaiah had family, brothers and sisters, and sons is a prophecy of the future. And these words here now are applied to Jesus Christ by the writer of Hebrews. And they are a statement of his confidence. It is as if here he places his arms around the sons and daughters of a, of a wavering church. A church that is tempted under persecution to go astray. A church that is tempted in sin to, to go away from the Lord. A church that is tempted to not persevere in the faith. And he places his arms around his sons and his daughters. And he says... Of solidarity, you're united with me. The writer here is future, picturing a future day when Jesus is with his church, a church that has persevered to the end. And he's saying to the people who he is writing this letter to, set your eyes in the future when you will stand with your older brother and we will have led you all the way. He will give you the power to live your life in perseverance and faith in Him. To not quit. To not be a, a Sunday morning Christian. Or a, a, an erratic one at best. But to have one with a laser focus on Jesus Christ. To finish the course that is set before you. To set your eyes upon Jesus, your older brother, the one who has brought you to the Father. And to finish. To persevere. To not burn out. To finish the course 
day after day. To hold fast to Christ and not waver. Because there is coming a day when, the, when Jesus will be standing in the midst of the Father with all those who have finished the course. These truths were the strength in the wavering church. Lift a fear of paralysis, of, of death. Jesus is the one who conquered death, verse 14. Jesus is the one who has conquered their greatest enemy. He has released them from bondage. Lewis Bailey was one of John Bunyan's, one of his two favorite writers. And very eloquently in a conversation between a soul in Christ, a redeemed soul in Christ, he portrays Christ's willingness here to embrace suffering. And to sympathize. And to lend help. With a conversation here. Soul. Lord, why did you let yourself be taken when you might have escaped your enemies? Christ. That your spiritual enemy should not take you. And cast you into the prisons of utter darkness. Soul. Lord, why did you let yourself be be bound? Christ. That I might loose the cords of your iniquities. Soul, Lord, why did you let yourself be lifted up on a, upon a cross, Christ, that I might lift you up with me to heaven? Soul, Lord, why were your enemy, why were your hands and feet nailed to the cross, Christ, to enlarge your hands to do the works of righteousness and to set your feet at liberty to walk in the ways of peace? Soul, Lord, why did you have your arms nailed wide, Christ? that I might embrace you more lovingly. Soul, Lord, why was your side opened with a spear? Christ, that you might have a way to come near to my heart. In this passage here, from the pen of the author of Hebrews, he has taken someone's objection that Jesus is not worthy because he suffered and angels don't undergo that suffering. And he has taken that and exalted that to a glorious truth and said, that is the backbone to your perseverance in the faith. This suffering has not produced a weak Savior. It has produced a powerful Savior. A pioneer Savior who can save to the uttermost because he was perfected by sufferings that his incarnation embraced. In other words, suffering was a training gym. Suffering outfitted him to be a perfect pioneer of salvation. And his suffering has blazed the way for great multitudes of his redeemed to follow. His suffering empowers you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to follow. So it was righteous, it was glorious to have a suffering Savior. And as we reflect on Christmas, let's not forget the incarnation was necessary because it produced a suffering Savior. And a suffering Savior was necessary to bring us to the Father.